through your word, transform us by it. Make this not merely an academic exercise, but an exercise in worship, worship of you through your word that you have, through which you have revealed yourself to us. We ask that you give us eyes to see your truth, that we may be transformed by your ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just one reminder here uh, quickly, uh, there is no uh, Wednesday night service a week from tonight, the Wednesday uh, just before Thanksgiving, and, um, and I won't be here this Sunday, and so uh, you all have the treat of the 9.30 message will be uh, delivered by Bill Simmons, and the 10.45 message will be uh, delivered uh, by Doug Gray, and, um, and just with, with that announcement, um, everybody knows that that we're, um, we're in a study of the book of 1 Samuel. We're in, chapter, uh, we're in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And just by way of review, kind of where we are in, this, um, in the events of chapter 15 is that uh, God commanded Samuel, excuse me, God commanded Saul through Samuel to utterly destroy the Amalekites. God tells Samuel to, to order Saul to destroy the Amalekites. There's a lot of history behind that. Very severe order that God issued with respect to the destruction of the Amalekites, and we've studied that history, so I won't go in it, into it again uh, this evening, but it was uh, an order that everything be destroyed, everything that could breathe, every animal, every human, all of it be destroyed, that all of it be put under the ban, meaning dedicated unto God for destruction. Saul disobeys, and Saul spares the choice animals. Saul spares the king. These are really trophies for Saul. Instead of dedicating them to the Lord as he was supposed to, he kept the choice things for himself. He was to dedicate all of it to the Lord for destruction, and instead he chose the animals that were choice animals, and he chose the king as trophies for his conquest, because back then what you would do when you conquered a people is you would take the leader and you'd put him in a cage and you'd parade him so that everybody saw what a mighty, powerful leader you were because you got that leader and he was your prisoner. This is the background of the events that we're going to see this evening. Saul's disobedience was not unintentional. It wasn't an accident. God, I didn't really understand what the order was. I was kind of confused. There's none of that here. It's clear in the text that Saul's disobedience was willful and intentional. It was a product of his pride. Saul began his kingship in a very humble way. We saw that when he first became king. He really didn't want to be king. He's hiding behind the luggage, and it's time for the coronation. And everybody's wondering, where's Saul? And, and they can't find him, and so God has to reveal he's over there hiding behind the luggage. He really didn't want to be king. He's humble. He really was humble. He started his kingship that way, but as, his, as God gave him success, like victory over enemies, then one of the occupational hazards of success is Pride. Pride's like a poison that infects the soul. And so in his pride, Saul changed his attitude. Pride crept into his soul like a cancer and it changed him. 
In his early years, he gave credit to God for the victory, his military victories, like his victory in chapter 11 over the Ammonites. Saul is quick to praise God for that. But here in chapter 15, his victory over the Amalekites that God gave him. God gave him both victories. Here, Saul doesn't want to praise God. He praises himself, and he has a big monument built to the big dog Saul. He has a monument built to commemorate his own victory because he's not mindful that it's God who gave him the victory, even though he's disobeying God. It's partial obedience. He puts everything under the ban. All the Amalekites, he utterly destroys them, except some of them, except the ones that he decided to spare in his disobedience. When Samuel arrives, remember Samuel is the judge, the prophet, and the priest. He's, he's turned over the judge baton to the king. Remember, the judges were, were leaders. They were political leaders. And so when King Saul was, was anointed and then coronated, Samuel stops being a judge. And he turns over the political power over to the king. So really his function now is priest and prophet. And so he's God's agent. He comes to Saul. And as he approaches Saul, this is just by way of review before we get into our passage tonight. As he approaches Saul, Saul says, I was so good. I was so good. I obeyed God. I mean, Saul kind of leads with that about how obedient he has been to God in terms of following the command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And so then Samuel responds, what is this bleating in my ear that I hear? What's the sound of the sheep and the sound of the oxen that I hear? And Saul's response is to make excuses because pride is deceptive. Look at verse 21 of chapter 15. We saw this last time, but just by way of review. But the people, this is Saul's response to Samuel. He says, But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Pride makes excuses. Pride justifies itself. Pride does not acknowledge wrongdoing, one's own wrongdoing, and it points the finger, he did it. He's at fault. He's at fault. That's what we're seeing in Saul. Excuse number one is that the troops did it. That's why he says the people, when, when, it, when the text here talks about the people, it's referring to the troops. He's saying that the troops spared those animals, spared the choice animals. And of course, Saul's the king. All he has to do is say, do it. All he has to do is say, kill all the animals. No, don't spare those choice oxen and those choice sheep. Kill them all. And he's the king, and it would have been easy. The soldiers immediately would have followed the king. But he blames them instead of himself. Excuse number two from Saul is ritual. Excuse number one, the troops did it. Excuse number two is ritual. He's saying, we spared the choice animals so that we could sacrifice them to God. Samuel, you're a religious man. You're a religious guy. You're a man of faith, Samuel. You can appreciate this. Don't you know we're only supposed to sacrifice animals that have no spot and no blemish? And that's why I saved these ones, Samuel. These are the choice animals. So look at Samuel's response in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. This is an ugly, an ugly, powerful rebuke that Samuel makes of Saul. It exposes Saul's hypocrisy and his pride. Of course, Samuel is not downplaying sacrifices. I mean, Samuel's a priest. He's a Levitical priest. He's in the Levitical line. He's very familiar with the Old Testament's ritual of animal sacrifices. He knew the importance of ritual animal sacrifices. He knew that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice for sins, Messiah. But what Samuel is saying here is that engaging in biblical ritual with a rebellious heart is an offense to God. It's not only meaningless. Ritual without reality is not only meaningless, but it's hypocrisy. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 7, where he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Samuel's point is, which Jesus makes many centuries later, Samuel's point is that God values obedience more than religious ritual. Obedience is king, not the outward activities of the rituals of even the Bible itself. Keep reading in verse 23. For this, is, this is Samuel's continued rebuke of Saul. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Again, Samuel continues with these biting, biting words of rebuke against Saul. The word here for divination is the Hebrew word kesem, and it is the idea of witchcraft, engaging, consulting a witch, a, a medium, in order to divine the future. It's a, it's a way to try and influence the future by divining the future, by, by consulting demonic forces to try and learn the future. As opposed to relying on the God who is, on the living God, it's going to a counterfeit to demonic forces, which is what witchcraft does, in order to try and determine the future, which is really an effort to try and control the future. Divination, this Hebrew word kesem, involves witchcraft which, and, and, and consulting demons, which is a capital offense under the Mosaic law. Samuel is saying that willful rebellion, don't miss this, willful rebellion against God is like relying on demons to influence the future. He makes this sharp comparison, Samuel does, because God alone is sovereign, and when we act independent of God, it's tantamount to witchcraft. It's tantamount to divination, rebelling against God, willful, intentional rebellion against God. It's an effort to usurp God's sovereignty over the affairs of humanity. It's an attempt to override God's plan for our lives. This is very this, this is a very ugly description that Samuel makes with respect to rebellion. We think of sinful activity because we've been conditioned by the spirit of the age as, it's not good. It's, it's an error. It's a boo-boo. 
But here, Samuel describes willful, intentional rebellion against God as tantamount to consulting demonic powers. It's tantamount to witchcraft and divination because it's the idea of usurping God's sovereignty over the affairs of mankind. Here Saul acts like he is engaging in witchcraft. Before the book of, the, the, the book of 1 Samuel is over, he will engage actually in witchcraft by consulting the, the witch of Endor. And he won't do the witchcraft, but he'll ask her to do the witchcraft on his behalf, to, be, to engage in divination on his behalf. This is the anointed of God who will do this. This is Saul, the king of Israel, who will engage, by, engage in, in witchcraft by soliciting the witch of Endor. Samuel also says that insubordination is as idolatry. Now, this word here for insubordination is a very difficult word in the Hebrew. It's the, the, the verb patsar in the hifel stem, and honestly, we don't know exactly what it means. We have a general sense of what it means, but we don't know 100% what it means. Most, if you consult a half dozen Bibles, they'll have different interpretations of it. So the NASB that I'm reading for translates it insubordination. The New King James translates it stubbornness. The NET, if you're reading from that, it translates it presumption. The NIV, if you're reading from that, it translates it arrogance. They're all kind of in the ballpark, but we don't know 100% exactly what the hifil stem of Patsar means. In this context, I think we can say, in, the, in a general sense, it's the idea of willful resistance. And here for Saul, it's willful resistance against God. Arrogant, presumptive, insubordination against God. The reason that stubborn rebellion, this Hebrew word kasem, is compared to idolatry is because in rebellion against God, I put myself above God. I'm more important than God. God's will is less important to me than my will. That's what rebellion does to the person. It makes self the idol. I'm more important than God. Don't you know that? That's how rebellion works in the mind. And it's driven. The energy, the gasoline of rebellion, the gasoline of resisting God, the, the, the the, the driver of it is pride. Pride feeds the idol of self. Self is the idol and self seeks to unseat God. That is what Saul's objective is here in this rebellion against God. It's not just Saul, it's you and it's me. This is how we act and how we think when we scoff at God's ways, when we reject his design for our lives. Keep reading in verse 23, Saul says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. As is often the case, a leader is a reflection of the people that he leads. Do you remember what God said to Samuel when the people clamored for a king back in 1 Samuel 8? He said, he said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The people's rejection of God fits their leader's rejection of God. The people's rejection of God 
fits Saul's rejection of God. He's just a reflection of the people. The reason we have wicked leaders in America is because we, I'm not trying to offend anybody in the room, it's because we're wicked. It's because we're godless as a people, as a whole. And that's why our leaders are godless, especially in a, in a, in a representative form of government where we actually pick them. Right? The people didn't pick Saul. No, God picked Saul, and Saul fit the pattern of what the people wanted, rejection against him. But what we're seeing here is that Saul is simply a reflection of the people. The people reject God. Saul, their leader, rejects God. In our passage, God says, you have rejected my authority to Saul, and so I will reject you, yours. A couple of chapters earlier in chapter 13, God rejected Saul's dynasty, and now he rejects Saul's kingship. The rest of 1 Samuel details the process of Saul's fall. The demise of both his dynasty and his kingship are now certain. The book of 1 Samuel will end with the violent and unceremonious unseating of Saul. It will be a violent removal from his kingship, from his position of power. Now, it's going to be about 18 years from this event in chapter 15 to the end of the book. It's about 18 years between this decree, this this statement from God that you're finished. You're finished, Saul. It'll be about 18 years from this decree to the actual ending of Saul's life. And like most kings, the kingship is tied to the life. In other words, you're alive, you're king. The way you stop being king is you're dead. And so that's why those two things will be connected. In about 18 years, Saul will be removed and his, he will literally lose his head. And during this time period of 18 years, God will train a new leader, a godly leader, not a sinless leader, but a godly leader. Sometimes as an act of grace, God gives a godless people a godly, a godly leader. Israel won't deserve David. Israel deserves Saul because Saul is a reflection of the people's rejection of God. But sometimes God comes in and he gives a people who rejects him, he gives them a godly leader. That's an act of grace by God. That's what we should be praying for for our nation after we pray for revival. We should be praying for God's unmerited grace to give us godly leaders despite our rebellion against him. That's what's going to happen with with David, who is the replacement for King Saul. Keep reading in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. I think King Saul is a believer. I don't think he's an unbeliever. I believe he is redeemed and regenerate. And I say that because chapter 10 said that God changed his heart. We saw that in chapter 10. Also, chapter 10 says that the Spirit indwelt him and that God was with him. So I believe Saul is a believer, but like any believer, Saul 
can get involved in sin. Any sin that an unbeliever can commit, a believer can commit. Believers are not somehow immunized from their sin nature. Any sin that an unbeliever can commit, a believer can commit. And Saul gets deep into his sin, and the sin is serious. Saul's sin happens because his priorities are reversed. Instead of fearing God, he fears the people we see here in this text. Instead of seeking the approval of God, he seeks the approval of people. This is easy. This is easy to get into. It's all about our priorities. It's easy to make your priorities whack by oriented the, orienting them to a world. I mean, the culture, the entertainment industry, the media, friends, family, they're selling us something. They're selling all they have. The only thing they have is feel good. The only thing they have is what can be seen and touched and felt. And we are unicorns. I mean, they look at us like, wait, 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 wait. You follow someone you can't see or hear or feel. You follow someone who's invisible. And you obey someone who's invisible. I'm selling you what's real and you can touch and feel, right? I mean, that's the contrast between what the culture sells and, between, and, and, and what God delivers. God is the one who is invisible and he says, follow what is written here. Trust me, is what he says. And the culture says, I'm going to give you all these other things that, that, that you get immediate enjoyment from. I don't know what's in there, but that doesn't look that fun to me. It's a contrast between what you can see and what you believe by faith. One is living by faith and one is living by sight. One is trusting the invisible one who has disclosed himself in the text and one is rejecting the invisible one and trusting in what, that which is visible, which is the ways of the world. This is Saul's problem. He lives by sight and not by faith and so he fears the people, not God, and he seeks to please the people, not God. In verse 25, Saul asks for forgiveness for his sin. All right? In verse 25, he says, please pardon my sin. And he confesses his sin four times. Four times here. Verse 24, I have sinned. Elsewhere in verse 24, I have indeed transgressed. Verse 25, pardon my sin. When we get to verse 30, he's going to say, I have sinned. So he's sinned and he's asked for forgiveness He's good. It's all good, right? I mean, I, I, I acknowledge my sin. I confessed my sin. It's all good. In fact, I confessed it four times. You know, maybe he's got to do some, some animal sacrifices under the Old Testament, ritual animal sacrifices. But other than that, I'm forgiven. I mean, isn't that what 1 John 1 9 says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Saul's golden, right? No. I don't think he's forgiven. I don't think he's forgiven. I'm not saying that his eternal salvation is is at risk. That's not at risk because it was never dependent on him in the first place. It's always dependent on the Lord. I'm not talking about his eternal salvation. That's secure for anyone who has been saved by grace through faith. Same thing in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Trusting in the Lord. I'm talking about his life after salvation. 
And so there's an issue here for Saul. I don't think this is a real confession. Saul is confessing his sin not as an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, but as a way to manipulate. It's a means to manipulate Samuel. He's trying to play Samuel. And the reason I say that is because when we get to verse 30, we're going to see that Saul wants Samuel to return with him before the elders and before Israel because he wants the gravitas of Samuel. He wants the, the air of significance from Samuel, the air of legitimacy from Samuel. Samuel's presence will communicate to the people that God's okay with what happened. God's okay that, that I didn't fully obey God. I mean, for Saul, it's important what the people think. It's critical to him. It's more important to him what the people think versus what God thinks. And so Saul needs Samuel to give him this air of legitimacy. It's kind of like when a politician cheats on his wife. Right? When a politician cheats on his wife and it's a big scandal, what does he do? He has a press conference, and if he's able to persuade her, he'll have her standing right next to him at the press conference, next to the pulpit, next to the lectern. Why? Because that communicates to the crowd, it's all good. Maybe there was a problem, but it's all good now because she gives an air of, her presence gives an air of legitimacy even though he was unfaithful. This is what Saul is trying to do. Saul wants the air of legitimacy of having Saul present with him when he returns to the people, even though he has engaged in what's compared to as idolatry, spiritual adultery, witchcraft, spiritual adultery, before God. And so he wants the gravitas of Samuel to be with him when he returns to the people so that it communicates to the people, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal that I disobeyed God. I don't think this is a confession. This is not a recognition of wrongdoing. This is an attempt to manipulate Samuel to come back with him and worship with him so that the people will say, okay, this isn't an issue that you disobeyed God, Saul. But even if it were a genuine confession, which I don't believe it was, even if it was, and there was, was forgiveness from God, there's still consequences. I mean, 1 John 1.9 doesn't say there are no consequences. It just means we're forgiven. God doesn't always take the belt out and whip us for every sin that we commit. Praise God for that. I'm grateful for that. Right? He doesn't always whip us for every sin that we commit. And you can't bank on that. You can't say, well, I didn't get, I, I didn't get whipped for, for that wrong thought yesterday. So, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, he's not going to take the belt out this time. Don't think like that, please. That, 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 is, that is an unwise way to think. God doesn't always discipline us for every sin that we commit, and it's up to God's discretion. It's up to God's judgment and his mercy as to what to discipline us for. Confession of sin and forgiveness under 1 John 1, 9, or in this case, forgiveness under the Mosaic law structure, doesn't remove the consequences for sin. There's still consequences, and it's up to God as to what consequences will be issued. As I said before, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your opportunity to serve God, and that's what, Paul will lose, what Saul will lose. Saul will lose the opportunity to serve God as king. Saul will lose the opportunity to earn rewards for eternity. Saul has lost his opportunity 
to serve as God's anointed over Israel. And the reason for that is because Saul doesn't desire to, to do God's will. Saul desires to do Saul's will, not the will of the Lord. And that is utterly intolerable to God. Keep reading in verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, turned to go Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Saul becomes desperate, desperate to save his throne, but God's decision was final. So Samuel refuses to go with Saul because he doesn't want his presence to be used by Saul to validate Saul's disobedience. Saul grabs the the, the hem of the robe, it rips And Samuel uses that as imagery to portray the certainty that God will rip the kingdom from Saul and give it to a better one, not a sinless one. There are no sinless ones other than the Lord Jesus Christ. David will not be sinless by any stretch of the imagination, but he's better than Saul in the sense that he will seek God's will, David will. Keep reading in verse 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Look at that title. This is is a name of God that you find nowhere else in the Bible. The name of God here is the glory. That's why it's capitalized there. The glory of Israel. It can also be translated the strength of Israel. This name of God describes the splendor, the preeminence, the power of God, the God of Israel. Samuel is making the point that God does not change positions like people do, right? Sometimes people change positions because they're liars. And so in order to accommodate the lie, they have to to alter the position to fit within the lie, the existing lie or the new lie that was told to cover the first lie. That's why Samuel says God is not like a man who lies. Sometimes people change position to accommodate lies. Sometimes people change position because they're fickle and they flip-flop back and forth. Sometimes people change their position because they don't have all the facts and they learn more facts and they say, oh, that's a better idea to change my position because I now have new facts, new information, and now I change course, understandably so. God is none of those. God fits none of those descriptions because for God... Of course, he doesn't lie. It's impossible for him to lie, the scripture says. Of course, he's not fickle. He doesn't lack any information. He knows all the knowable, past, present, future, potential, and always has, always been omniscient. And so Samuel says God is not like a human in any of those respects. In this case, God has ordered the demise of Saul, and that is now unreversible. It's important for Samuel to speak of these things about how God doesn't change his mind, doesn't lie like a person, because usually God does, in fact, relent if we repent. Usually God's judgments are conditional. The judgment usually is conditioned on us continuing in rebellion. But if we repent and we turn from the rebellion, 
then usually God will relent from his judgment. Jeremiah spoke of this with respect to Judah in Jeremiah 18, verse 11, where he said, So now then speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. And this is, this is God speaking. You, you can see the emotion. Just, 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 you can hear it in the words where God says, Oh, turn back. It's the Hebrew word shuv, to, to repent. He's almost begging the men of Judah, God, to turn back. Turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. In other words, if you will turn from your rebellion, if you will repent, I will relent. That's the normal course of God's judgments. Or the way the prophet Joel said it also with respect to Judah in Joel 2.13 and rend your heart and not your garments. Stop there for a second. Remember, they would rip their clothes as a, as, as a sign of, of mourning. They'd rip their clothes. Joel says, don't do that. Rip your heart. Change your heart. Submit to God. Return to God. Come to Him with a broken heart, with a contrite heart. Check your pride at the door. Come to God in humility is what Joel is saying. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil, which is the, the, the word here that we've studied before, ra'ah, can be translated evil, can be translated calamity. I think the better translation there is calamity. It's not saying that God produces evil. It's saying evil in the sense of judgment and destruction, calamity from God. The reason Samuel makes this point that God doesn't change his mind like a man, that God doesn't lie like a man, is he's saying this judgment from God is irrevocable. This is a, pre-de- this is, this is a, a ordained judgment from God and nothing can change it, not even your change of mind, Saul. Because for Saul, the time of repentance has passed. The time of repentance is over, and God will not relent concerning his judgment. Saul's demise is certain. God won't take Saul out for another 18 years, and during that time, Saul's rebellion will get worse. Saul's rebellion will intensify, and during those 18 years, Saul will be used by God. Saul's worst sinful life, Worse than where it is in, in chapter 15. His, his, his more rebellious life will be used by God as a source of testing, as a source of training for the new king, for David. It'll be a, tra- a source of training for David of what not to do. Saul will be a byline. Saul will be a cautionary tale. Eh, Saul. Because it will remind David and the people of what happens when you rebel against God. Saul's life will be a tragedy. A tragedy showing the consequences of rebellion. Rebellion against God is very, very, very dangerous. God can respond to our rebellion in different ways. Number one, God can show us mercy and give us more time to repent. I think that's the the usual course of action from God. Number one, God can show us mercy and give us more time to repent. Give the rebellious believer more time to repent. 
Number two, God can leave the rebellious believer alive and solely use him as a source of testing for others. Or number three, God can take out a rebellious believer. It's the, it's the, the, the sin leading to death that the Apostle John describes in 1 John 5.16, or to, to use the old language from the King James, the sin unto death. A premature physical death. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, they, they, they deceive, they try and deceive the Holy Spirit. They try and deceive Peter. We sold our property and, and we generated all this money for the church. They didn't have to give any money to the church. But they come in there and they want everybody to say, wow, you're so great. You gave all this money. And Peter says, you're lying. And they're killed immediately. Sin unto death. Sin leading to death. Now, we don't see that today, you know. That happens all the time in churches, right? In churches all the time, people are trying to manipulate other people through, through I'm not saying in this church, but in, in many churches, people try and manipulate others through, through um, what they do with money or don't do with money or say that they do with money. And so there in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira learn what the sin unto death is. God, I believe, will take Saul out under the sin unto death. What's, what's going to happen with Saul is his time to repent is finished. So, number one, that, that first option, God's not going to give that option to Saul anymore. He had it before. He had the time to repent before, but that time is finished. And so, Saul's time to repent is over. Option number one is not available, those three options I mentioned. Option number two, God is going to use Saul solely as a source of testing and training for David, training of what not to do. And then ultimately, number three, God will take Saul out in the sin of death shortly after Saul consults the witch at Endor. It's a very, very sad description for the anointed of God But that's what happens when you rebel against God. Keep reading in verse 30. This is Saul speaking. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Samuel's God is Yahweh, where Saul's God is the people. Saul wants to worship Samuel's God not for the sake of worshiping God, but so that Saul's people will see that he's worshiping Samuel's God. Saul Saul wants the people to honor Saul. And that's why Saul wants Samuel to come back with him so that we can have kind of this mutual worship deal. We can all worship together. And the reason I say that is because the, the contrasting words that are used here, right? Saul says, the Lord your God. In, this, in verse 30, he doesn't say the Lord my God. He says the Lord your God. And then he refers to my people. My people, your God. I want us to worship your God so that my people will see that. And my people, we're going we're to worship all together, Samuel. My people will see that. that I'm worshiping your God. And then some of your mojo will come onto me. And the people will say, I like you, Saul. I'm good with you, Saul, because you're attached to Samuel and Samuel's next to you, standing next to the podium. This is kind of the, the, the way that, that Saul views the whole concept of 
obedience to God and the concept of how, how to worship. It's a counterfeit worship. It's an illegitimate worship. Look at verse 31. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. And Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That's pretty detailed, right? He, I mean, if you look at the Hebrew, he cut him to pieces, Samuel did. In verse 26, Samuel said, I won't return with you, Saul. But here, in this passage, Samuel returns with Saul. So we see a man, not like God, a man who changes his mind. Samuel changed his mind. He said, I'm not going to return with you, Saul, verse 26. And now in this passage, in fact, he does return with him. We're not told why Samuel changed his mind. Samuel's a man, right? People change their mind, unlike God. We don't know the reason why Samuel changed his mind. It may have been because he saw a teaching moment for the people. Saul disobeyed God in taking Agag prisoner. Agag thought that he had escaped execution. That's why he comes up all cheery. He's, he's, he's cheerful because he thinks that he's not going to be killed. So Samuel publicly and graphically shows what obedience to God looks like, and he does it before the people. It's a sign to the people, your king disobeyed God. I mean, everybody knows what the command was. It's not like it's a secret. It's, it, it's very difficult to keep secrets in the world. Today, I assure you, it was very difficult to keep secrets back then as well. I mean, granted, they don't have social media, and they don't have any emails and texts and all that kind of stuff. But everybody's going to know what the order is because the order was given. We're going to hunt these people down. And they hunted the Amalekites down in this wide, we saw the, the, the great expanse, the, the, the great expanse of, of of the territory that they, that they had to hunt them down. They knew what the command was. They know that Saul violated the command because he brought the king back. So Samuel displays to the people what obedience looks like, what Saul should have done. And so Samuel returns there not to worship. I think Samuel changed his mind and decided to go back with Saul because he's indicating to the people Saul's disobedient. I'm, I'm going I'm to obey because Saul wouldn't obey. I'm going to obey God's command that Agag be executed. What I want you to see is that Samuel, it doesn't say that Samuel worshiped with Saul. This passage that we're looking at here, there's no reference to Samuel worshiping. It's Saul that worships, but not Samuel. And I think the reason for that is Samuel's finished with Saul. God's finished with Saul, so Samuel, who is totally aligned with God, is also done with Saul. Look at verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The fact that God's anointed, the king of Israel, Saul rebelled against God, was very disturbing to Samuel, it grieved him. It hurt him. 
It grieved Samuel to see the king violate God's will, to see the king reject God. Samuel is so aligned with God's will that when God's will is violated, it hurts Samuel. That's how sensitive he is to God's will. That's how sensitive we should be to God's will. When we see God's will violated, we should cringe. We should, eh, we should be disturbed by it. This is how Samuel thinks because he is so interested. His priority is so aligned to the will, the ways, and the word of God. This is why he grieves. As we saw last time from verse 11, God regretting that he made Saul king, we see that same concept in verse 11, is a way of saying that God changed his actions in response to Saul's actions. God's emotions, I believe God has emotion. God's emotions are perfect. They are holy. They are righteous, unlike ours. Ours are, are infected by our sin nature. But God's emotions, which are perfect and holy and righteous, changed towards Saul because of Saul's rebellion. God's emotional response here is described as regret. That doesn't mean that God said, man, bummer. I just learned something, and now I'm going I'm to change my mind. I'm disappointed about what I did. I'm disappointed that I made King Saul. That's not what it means. It's, it's not suggesting that God learned that Saul was a rebel, and that made God disappointed. It's not suggesting that at, at all. God's omniscient. He's always been omniscient. He's always known all the knowable since eternity passed, from everlasting to everlasting. What it's saying is that Saul changed, and because Saul changed, God's immutable character prompted God to change his approach to Saul, which God had always had in his plan since eternity passed. Nothing takes God by surprise because he's always known all the events of history and even all the potential events of history. God's emotion towards Saul, his righteous, holy, pure, perfect emotion is no longer an emotion of compassion and mercy. That time is finished because of Saul's rebellion. Now it is a response of wrath and judgment because of Saul's disobedience. God is finished with Saul. In the next chapter, we're going to see the new king who is introduced. A king who is a man after the Lord's own heart. Maybe better said, a teenager after the Lord's own heart. Because he's young. He's young when he will be anointed. He's young when he will display his trust in the Lord. And he, unlike all the other troops of Israel who are quaking in their boots, he goes down to the valley and takes on the giant and cuts his head off. It's the young teenager who is a man after the Lord's own heart. And we'll get introduced to him next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you encourage us by it. We ask that you implant it in our souls. We ask that you help us obey you. We, we make that prayer recognizing that we are wholly at fault for our disobedience and attributing none of it to you. But yet we ask for your, for your assistance it's almost an embarrassing prayer, Father, but we ask for it. We ask that you help us in light of our being prone to wander from you. We ask that you break us 
of our rebellion, break us of our pride, challenge us to obey you in all times, and when we fail, prick our conscience that we would confess our sin and turn from it. Help us do those things, please, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 